Welcome to the Lit Matters Podcast, a show whose journey is to discover the books that matter, the stories that we should all be reading. I'm your host, Chris Evans, and I've devoted decades in education examining this very topic. Each week, I'll be joined by a guest, fellow teachers, librarians, writers, and lovers of books from all walks of life who will advocate for a single transformative book, one that we should all be reading. Through this podcast, I hope to build a collective bookshelf of amazing stories, lit that matters. Welcome to episode seven of the Lit Matters podcast. I'm one of those types of people who hates to be late. If I'm invited to a party and the party's supposed to start at seven, I arrive at seven as the only person. As a student, I lived in fear of the dreaded tardy. And as a teacher, when my students come in late, I'm always a little annoyed. I just don't like to be late. But for today, I am going to try to embrace my inner lateness. To discuss Thomas Friedman's Thank You for Being Late, An Optimist Guide to Thriving in the Age of Accelerations, we are joined by Dr. Jeremy Shermack, a former print journalist and a professor of journalism at Orange Coast College. So, Jeremy, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. I really appreciate you having me. Good to be here. Oh, it's, it's fantastic. Uh, in person. <laughs> in person, live. And I, I will say that to our audience, I'm sitting across a table from someone who's fully vaccinated, as am I, yes. having a conversation with a real human being. And... It's amazing and strange and weird. Yes, I totally agree. And I yeah. love it. No, so, so, so fantastic. So, yeah. so, so Jeremy, thank you for being here. Sure. Actually here. Yes, actually here. Actually oh, here. Thrilled. thrilled. And, and for doing the show today. So uh, Jeremy, you're a journalist and you have a background in digital and interactive media, but I hear you're also a huge baseball fan. So before we get to this book, I need to talk some baseball. All right. I'm, I will never turn down talking baseball. I've spent a lot of time sitting at baseball stadiums debating with my best friends or my son, do you think that person's a Hall of Famer? So I ask you today, if you had to fill out a lineup card of the greatest Hall of Famers of all time in baseball, who would they be? So I, I'm so happy that I had a heads up on this question <laughs> because this, you know, dealing with the Friedman book, which we'll get to, we're talking about climate change and globalization, all these complex things. This by far was the most challenging question. No <laughs> doubt. Um, I, I have to give a shout out to my buddies. We, we have a, we've been doing a zoom. Um, my friends from, from college every Thursday night. And I mentioned, Hey, we're going to do, I'm doing this podcast tomorrow. And I got this question, all time baseball team. So we, we, we didn't actually debate the team. We debated the boundaries in which we define this team. And so we came up with, you need to go with players you have seen in person. Okay. I like it. I like it. So. And so I, so I, as you mentioned, I'm a lifelong baseball fan. And I actually, a couple of years ago, kind of started this project where I started tracking every game I've ever been to. And I looked back at old photographs and tried to match up date, you know, I matched up, okay, my dad wouldn't have been able to take us to a game on a Friday, so this game must have been on a Saturday. And so I literally started a list of games that I attended and a list of all the players I've seen play. Wow. Yeah, and so it's been, it's been really fun. So I came up with my team based on that list. Okay. I told you, I'd deep dive in this. I love this. We may not get to the book. I know, can, I know. We can, this, this is a baseball <laughs> this podcast. A I'm baseball good podcast. with that. I'm good with that. <laughs> okay, so... So in, this is in no batting order, but here's my kind of around the, around the horn, uh, around the field lineup. So got to go Ricky Henderson and left. Yeah. Um, saw him play with, saw him play kind of in his later days with San Diego. Yeah. Um, but just such an exciting player and such in deviates so far. F- not, I don't want to say so far from what's in the game today, but the stolen base is kind of 
exited the building, yeah. um, which I think is unfortunate. And if you go back and watch Ricky Henderson play in his prime, you'll see why. 120 stolen bases in a year. I mean, that's crazy. crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. And 300 plus home runs. Yeah, yeah. So. yeah. We're, we're not talking about the book. We're talking about baseball. I know. I know. I feel like I know. I feel like I'm going to take us down this huge rabbit hole. Um, I got to go with. Uh, I got to go with the kid. I got to go with Griffey Jr. in center. I mean, just one of the most exciting players. Kind of came on the scene right in the sort of prime of my my childhood fandom. Um, Tony Gwynn, lifelong uh, fan of Tony Gwynn, smoothest swing. Um, Mike Schmidt. I got to see Mike Schmidt, and I'm a Cubs fan, and he would just always destroy the Cubs every time. He destroyed a lot of teams, but. He would always destroy the Cubs. Um, Cal Ripken Jr. at short. Um, just that that record, the Iron Man record, is just unbelievable. My probably my all time favorite player, uh, Ryan Sandberg, um, at at second. Got to put him there. Uh, first base, Frank Thomas. Um, I know you know maybe I shouldn't have a White Sox player in this roster, but but Big Frank was just awesome. I mean, he was just a beast. That side of that side of the city does not like the other side of the, the city. It does not. Okay. No, it does not. But much much respect to Big Frank. Um, at catcher, I had a really hard time, um, and I was really. But I ended up going with Mike Piazza, okay. which is kind of an interesting pick. Um, and again, this, these are players I've seen. Um, but I, I, I just kind of was looking to the list. I was like, Piazza in his day, man, he could, he could rake. So, um, and then my pitching, I just picked a few starters, Greg Maddox, of course. I mean, um, the first baseball game I ever attended was, um, I think it was the, it was one of the last starts of Ferguson Jenkins career. Oh, wow. And it was his second go around with the Cubs in 1982. Um, but I got to see him pitch. It was my first game. I think I was four or three, <laughs> but, um, but that was cool. Pedro Martinez, I still think is one of the greatest pitchers I've ever seen. Um, and then my closer would be Lee Smith, which my mom always, my mom didn't like Lee Smith cause she always thought he made things too nerve wracking, but I'm like, he did end up being like the greatest, one of the greatest closers of all time. So that is my team. And I know we could do an entire podcast about it. <laughs> yeah. Two of my favorite <laughs> players on there. So again, Greg Maddox is probably my all time favorite baseball yeah, player. Right. And, well, you Braves fan, Cubs fan. Right. So we saw you know, he threw 90 miles an hour, yet he still his stuff was so wicked. That change up was incredible. Yeah. And he made people look silly. And then Tony Gwynn. I got to see him play a lot as well, too. And I, 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 it's funny you bring those two up because I think Tony Gwynn hit almost 400 against Greg Maddox. And Maddox would always say, I couldn't get that guy out. Like he yeah. just saw it so clearly. Yep, he totally um, did. So yeah. I, I love that. So yeah. we will have our own baseball <laughs> We'll do podcast, a baseball one. <laughs> uh, one day. And, and, and I am so fascinated. Yeah. But I brought you here today to talk about journalism yes. and, and about the Friedman book. So if we're talking Hall of Famers, what about your Hall of Fame for journalists? Yeah. Who would you place in that? Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's another difficult question. I mean, I, I think that, you know, if you think of the, the the Mount Rushmore, so to speak, of journalists, you know you got to have you know Walter Cronkite there, you know Woodward and Bernstein, of course. Um, for me, I, I started thinking about the journalists who influenced my 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 view of the world, my view of journalism, my desire to go into journalism. You know, I, I started out um, in journalism, wanting to do sports journalism, and so you know some of the people that I grew up. I mean, I absolutely loved Harry Carey. You know. Um, Developed a Harry Carey impression at a young age. Just thought him very funny, and just it was it was really something that my grandparents um, and my parents we always bonded over. We just loved Harry, um, and then Vin Scully is always one of my favorites too. I mean, just Vin is just the best, um, and I, and I consider them journalists. You know, a lot of times I think that play by play announcers don't get included in that group, 
but they are they do much of the they do they do the journalism um and and i think um for sports they're very important as sports writers go um i always love mike royko from the tribune um just you know the classic uh classic columnist um really love george plimpton uh you can't beat you know sid finch the sid finch story is just incredible um i grew up watching a lot of tv news and i always loved tom brokaw quite honestly um just a real down the middle, um, trustworthy voice, you know? Um, and then I, I kind of go way back. Some, if I'm, if I'm reading, I, I'm more of a nonfiction reader, quite honestly, but if I'm, um, um, if I'm reading nonfiction or fiction, I love Twain and I love Hemingway. Um, and they were both journalists. And so their style to me, um, it really kind of speaks to that, that, that love of journalism that I have. So that, that's my hall of fame. I'm sure I'm missing someone on the, on there, but um, yeah, those are those are a lot of the folks who really stand out to me in my life who made an impact. Well, you're a Chicago, Michigan guy, so yeah. certainly you have the Hemingway connection. I know his house is there, and, yep. and also off of Michigan as well, too. And, and I think, yeah, he spent uh, all those years uh, covering the Spanish Civil War, I think. Yeah. Or, or the Spanish... Uh, the Spanish, yeah, yeah. yeah, the Spanish Civil yeah. War. Yeah, yeah. yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, yeah. My, my, my brain... I know, my, my history was yeah. like, wait a minute, yeah. No, you're right, you're right, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Hemingway. Um, and then one place I still haven't visited is I want to go to his house in Key West. I haven't been there yet. Yeah, all the little cats with, go. with yeah. five or 12 claws or whatever it <laughs> right. happens to be. Whatever weird, you know. So, yeah, but a huge, huge fan. And uh, and Twain, too. Um, I went to the University of Missouri. And um, when I would drive down there, I'd always go past his, ho- his home, his uh, childhood home. You could go tour it and see it. And so, um, yeah, really good. Just great, great writing. His short stories. Um, is actually one of my favorite collections. Just uh, they're just really great. And, and if you're leaking sort of the, you know, again, this is a a podcast that talks about what books matter as well too. And I do think that, you know, a to go back to the sports world as well too. You hear someone like Vin Scully, he was a storyteller, yep. and that's why I think people loved to to watch his games because the story was much larger than the game that was going on. And then if you think about the writers that you mentioned as well too, I mean, Twain in some ways legitimized. American literature as a whole, the mm-hmm. world started to recognize just the brilliance and the sheer wit and the, the intelligence of, of what he was doing. Yeah, and then yeah. certainly Hemingway. I was I was trying to, to defend this to to someone I know recently that you have to recognize he reinvented the way we write. And there's a lot of his life I don't like. He was you know, sure he was sexist. He was you, know, you name it. Oh yeah, but just the craft of writing and the clarity and and the the sheer difference that that we saw and 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 for for reporting right that's what you need to have is that clarity where it, it cuts through and, and and i love that you mentioned brokaw as well too because i think he was the journalist i grew up watching and knowing and and trusting like you when, what you heard on the news you knew mm-hmm. this isn't the spin zone right it seems to be fact and, that, and that's sort of like the next question i, I was going to ask you which is you know the definition of journalism at least traditional journalism has changed so much in in the last years. How do you see the role of journalism in 2021? Yeah. Whew. That's another podcast. We, we, we have multiple <laughs> episodes we can do. Um, we can break this one up. We can break this one up. <laughs> yeah. There. But, but, but no, um, you know, when I, so I also um, teach uh, introduction to mass communications here at OCC. And I, I absolutely love teaching that class. And part of the reason why is to bring up the history of it. Of, of mass communications and journalism, of course, is, um, you know, inherently 
um, intertwined with that. And the way that the way that I kind of describe news changing is, you know, in the early days of, of certainly of like television news and newspapers, you know, it was more like kind of like a dinner party. You know, Walter Cronkite would come sit at the end of the table and you would sit and you'd listen to him and he would tell you what the news of the day was and you'd say, OK, great, that's the news of the day. And then as the as the industry started to, you know, um, grow and also divide, um, it kind of became more like a cocktail party, right? People are, <laughs> people are in the room, but people are having little conversations in other corners. You know, some people aren't hearing the other group of people. And now I say today's journalism is sort of like a Dave and Buster's or something. It's just madness. <laughs> it's kind of a carnival. Um, there's a lot to sift through. And, and I think it ties into the Friedman book really well because that has changed so quickly, you know, the technology that we're using to carry these messages has changed so quickly and gotten so fast that we're now in, in an information, you know, uh, tsunami. And, we, and we, it's hard for us to even decipher, OK, what is true, what is not. You know, I, I have a rule in my class. I say we don't use the term the media in here. If you have something to say about the media, I want, give me names. <laughs> I, want, I want names and networks and news outlets because, you know, the evening lineup on any given cable network, give me any of the three cable networks, is not the same as the person covering a story over at Voice of OC. Those are, those are two, those, that is not the media. Those are two different things. And so I think the way that I would describe journalism now, like I said, it, it, it is kind of a circus there's, but there's, but there's some of the best journalism that's ever been done is being done right now. And what's, what is frustrating, I think, is that getting that word out there, you know, so much of it is being done at a local level. Um, I mentioned Voice of OC. They're a new kind of nonprofit newsroom um, that pride themselves on being nonpartisan um, nonprofit here in Orange County. And I think they're doing a wonderful job and they're, and they're calling out, um, they're calling out local government. They're, they're reporting on local government, these kind of hyper-local things. Um, my first job at a newspaper, a very small newspaper in southwestern Michigan, Harbor Country News, and I cover local government. And local government's wild. You want drama? You don't need to go to a big city. <laughs> go, to, go to a drain commission meeting or something. I mean, it, it doesn't sound sexy, but it is wild. And so those stories, you know, the stories that... Um, need to be told or being told, I think, really at, at local levels. I mean, there's just wonderful journalism being done. I fear that it's not being, um, I just fear that it's not being heard because of all the noise and, and, and all of the animosity against, quote unquote, the media. And so I really want, I want people to try to, you know, make sure to, to um, decipher that differently, to, to delineate between different news outlets because they have, they do have different agendas. And they, and yes, in a wonderful world, they'd all be, you know, completely objective and you know but that's not the way the the world is operating right now so um news literacy understanding the the kind of the news ecosystem if you will is more important today than ever before you know i I teach critical thinking and i i always tell my students that's your job is to take the information you're given and then to decipher it in ways that you come out with the greatest likelihood of truth. Mm-hmm. And that's a hard thing to do because of all of the noise, because of all of the 
the effectiveness of this just supernova, this tsunami, as you say, yeah. of information that's incredibly compelling it visually. And, 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 you know, just the stories are told in such ways and the opinions are, are, are so bombastic at times and that's, that's hard to do. Yeah. Um, well, uh, you know, today you, you, you came to talk about Friedman's book, Thank you for being late. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think it's incredible. Again, the goal of this show is to talk about books that matter, books that we should all be reading. Mm-hmm. And I must say, uh, even though the book was written in 2016, I, I felt as though this mattered so much yeah. in our world today. And I, and I want you to talk about that. But can you give us a quick overview of the book for, for those who have never read it before? Sure. Just what's the book about? Sure, sure. So, um, so if you don't know, so Tom Freeman is a, a columnist at the New York Times, and he was a he was a foreign correspondent for many years. And I always I, I've always enjoyed reading his work, both his column and his reporting. Um, he's been everywhere. I mean, you know, the stories that he shares um, about being in Senegal and, and, you know, in Syria. And I mean, it's incredible. Uh, and so he has that perspective. And so the story really is about um, and Friedman has said this himself. He said it's about um, Mother Nature and he talks about climate change. Uh, Moore's Law, talking about technology and Moore's Law, um, Graham Moore, who was the founder of Intel, um, he made this theory 52 years ago, I think 50, yeah, something like 52 years ago, that micro, microprocessing is going to double each year. And what's insane about it is that it's held. And in fact, it's accelerated. And so, you know, if you if you if you think about something doubling 52 years in a row, that's wild. Um, and so it's, it's about that. It's about that acceleration, that technology. And then also um, what what um, more, um, what Freeman calls uh, markets. So globalization. And it's not just globalization like, you know, I live in Long Beach, the shipping containers I see hanging out on the ocean. <laughs> yes. This is globalization um, and kind of what. Um, Freeman started to talk about when he when he wrote um, the world is flat about the digi- the way digitally we have flattened the world so so the way that we can use you know um, PayPal to make these transactions with someone overseas and we can pay someone very quickly and we don't need a lot of technology to do that it it's really flattening um, the way we make transactions and so he kind of talks about how all of these things are truly reshaping the world and how they exist among one another. They coexist. Um, I was first recommended this book um, in 2019 when I was writing my uh, dissertation, finishing up my PhD in journalism at the University of Texas in Austin. And my, my dissertation was about, actually about broadcast meteorology. I, was, grew up, I grew up a weather nerd. And if I, <laughs> if I hadn't have done this, I probably would be your local TV meteorologist. Um, I just always loved the weather. Um, it's and, hard in California to love the weather because our meteorologists say it's sort of sunny. Yeah, it's right. A little overcast. Yeah, today. yeah. And I, I, when I first moved here, I told one of <laughs> one of my colleagues, I said, I said the weather here is kind of boring. And they're like, wait till the wildfires. And I'm like, oh, I shouldn't have said that. Oops. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but but you know, there's no tornadoes. There's no, you know, um, I grew up you know in, in the lake effect snow belt yeah. in yeah. southwestern Michigan, so we don't have that. I don't miss that too much, I'll have to say. But um, but I was really, I, I, it was always an interest of mine, and I studied. I studied a lot about, um, you know, the intersection, uh, when I was doing my PhD, I studied the intersection between, you know, your traditional journalists and social media and how they were kind of getting along and, and working with social media. And I just had this idea one day of looking into 
um, how broadcast meteorologists deal with it. And so it ended up being really fascinating. Um, the amount of nonsense that they put up with, um, conspiracy theories, uh, female meteorologists, my goodness, you know, comments about their clothing, about their appearance, all these sort of things. But we also talked an awful lot about climate change and how they're trying to integrate that into their forecast, but it never fails to bring about, you know, the pushback you would expect. And so I was interviewing a gentleman by the name of John Morales, who is the, um, the chief meteorologist at the NBC affiliate in Miami, um, bilingual meteorologist. And he really is in touch with that entire community. Um, he goes and speaks at schools. He goes and, you know, he has a, I think he has his own podcast. He has his own uh, consulting company. And he told me about this book. He said, you need, you need to read this book. He said, because it, it's one of the few books out there that says climate change isn't just this separate thing. It, it, it's affecting everything. It all ties back to the technology. It ties back to the globalization. He said, you got to read this book. And he gave me several other um, book recommendations as well. Uh, so it was really fascinating to, to talk to him and get that perspective. So that's first when I heard about it. And when I was finished with my, P, my dissertation and I finally was done, I was like, okay, I'm going to take a breath and now I'll read. This is the first book I read. And it really, um, it blew me away. Even though, and it was, again, you know, you mentioned earlier, it was 2016. I read it in late 2019, right? And I probably finished it right about before the pandemic hit. And so much of it just kept, I just kept thinking about it throughout this time. Wow. It, it's, it was a stunning read. And, and, and I, so let's maybe turn to that. So the book was written in 2016, but what insights do you think it gives us into this current COVID-19 pandemic existence that we are in. I, I think to me what stands out are speed and also the, the global globalization of it. This was, a, this was a global crisis. And one of the things that Freeman talks about in the book a lot, especially in regards to climate change, is that climate change is no longer an issue that's happening over there, you know, happening somewhere else, Right. Um, it's happening in our backyard, your backyard, your parents' backyards, right? It, it's, it really, really is. Um, and, and so the pandemic for a little while was happening in China, right? And it was just kind of, it was a, it was a quote unquote foreign thing to many of us, right? And then it came ashore and, you know, we had a few cases originally, I think in Washington state, and then a couple popped up in California and then New York, and New York, I think, you know, um, I was reading the other day, I think, I think the date was May 11th. Someone called it Tom Hanks Day. And, or I'm sorry, March, was it March 11th? Probably March 11th. But um, they called it Tom Hanks Day. It was a day that both, it was revealed that Tom Hanks and his wife, Rita Wilson, had contracted COVID-19 in Australia and the day that the NBA shut down. And I think for a lot of people, there was a whiplash effect where it was just like, whoa, this is, this is real. Like they got Hanks, you know, <laughs> um, they can't take Hanks. America's uh, treasure. Yeah. You come on. Possibly. You can't do that to Hanks. But, but, I, and I also think seeing sports shut down so abruptly, yeah. I mean, you know, uh, being a sports fan, you being a sports fan, we know how much it's, it's woven into the fabric of this country and to see it say, okay, that's it. You know, and then the NBA went down and then all of a sudden they're like, okay, no March madness. No. Yeah. I mean, and, and so that, that speed, I think it really struck people and they, I think a lot of people tended not to believe 
it because they said, well, this seems too fast. How can this be here so quickly? How can this disease spread so quickly? And that, that kind of messes, I think, with our, with our belief system because it does seem unbelievable. You know, if you think about the, the most spectacular, and I don't mean this in a good way, surprising, terrifying events in a, a lifetime, you know, for me, you know, 9-11 is the first thing I think about. This pandemic is going to be on the list for many people. You know, it's um, JFK assassination. All those, all those moments were such quick, high-impact moments, and so many of them are riddled with conspiracy theories. And it's one of these things where when, when something happens, um, you know, in the, the human mind, we want to we find answers right away. I want to know, why is this disease spreading? Why, you know, why is it um, so rampant in New York? What, what can I do to prevent it? And I think sometimes our brain, we want to find those answers so quickly, we turn to conspiracy theories. And it's that speed that makes us uncomfortable. And Friedman talked a lot about the discomfort of the speed for so many people. And I think I really saw that a lot with the pandemic and seeing it now with the vaccine, too. When you hear criticism of the vaccine, they say, oh, it was developed too fast. It was developed too quickly. Well, the truth is the technology that was being used to make the vaccine had been in production for quite a while. And the fact that we were able in this short amount of time, in, in my mind, my opinion, we should be dancing in the streets that we were able to turn this around so quickly. It is, it is a modern marvel of medicine, of, of science, that it was able to be turned around so quickly. People say, oh, it takes 10 to 15 to, uh, um, years to do a vaccine. Well, maybe back then, but we're in a new age. And, and so, but that's really hard for people to accept that level of speed um, because we have, a lot of, we have computers doing a lot of the thinking and the analysis for us now that we didn't before, and it's just come so fast. Um, so I, I think there's so much. And I also think, too, that the global crisis response that we saw to the pandemic could in many ways be kind of a, a microcosm, if you will, for this response to climate change. Because the pandemic, you know, it, it wasn't a 9-11 where you saw buildings collapsing and planes exploding. The pandemic was a kind of a really slow burn that we didn't see and journalists couldn't cover it very well because it couldn't go into hospitals. There's, there's privacy issues. There's a danger to the journalists themselves. Climate change is, is sort of a similar thing. I mean, I can point to many examples where you can see it, but for a lot of people, unless it's happening in their own home, in their own backyard, then it's not happening. And I, and I think that was a scary side of this that we saw. Um, and I, I, it concerns me a lot, actually, for climate change and, and, the, and the, what we need to, re, to do to respond to it. Um, I think there were some not so good things that come out of the pandemic. I think one of my favorite parts of the Friedman book was the section that focused on the year 2007. Yes. And again, just the, the rapid nature of like the single transformative year in terms of how we get our information and the, the advent of, you know, the, the way cell phones took over our lives and rapid internet. Can, and it was so beautifully stated and it really connected to our world today because as you're right, I mean, having lived through 9-11, you know, and seeing again the, the, the brilliance of what journalists had to do to cover that mm -hmm. after and, and not to minimize one of the worst things I've ever lived through in my life. Mm -hmm. Within a week, Americans had found something to restore 
a sense of purpose. And you're right, baseball, where as baseball fans, you know, they played a, a baseball game in New York, what, a week later, and it was the Mets and the Yankees, yeah. and it, it connected things. Living in California, I remember when the earthquake hit, for, it stopped the World Series, and yeah. baseball was this unifying sort of, how do we get back to normal? Mm-hmm. Um, but this pandemic made it where we could, the, the normal seemed so strange. And, and you're right, at the, at the touch of our fingers was any bits of information we wanted to have. And, and, and because of all the noise that's out there, yeah. uh, people were able to go down whatever rabbit hole they wanted. And that was the frightening part. And, yes. and I think Friedman just nailed it. And I, I felt like there was this almost prophecy to the book of, yeah, yeah, you were able to foresee what we were going to go through yeah. without naming it specifically. Totally. I, I felt that way when I read the Friedman book. I felt that way when I did my dissertation, just hearing meteorologists talk about the pushback they get when they bring up hard science. And I thought, man, the, I, I could have seen this coming in a way. You know, um, I, I think I heard Friedman do, do an interview once talking about 9-11 and that, 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 that moment in our history. You know, it was it didn't take a lot. I mean, it obviously it was a lot, but if you think about how fast we went from being able to walk someone to a gate at an airport to all of a sudden you have to take your shoes off before you walk through security, but people didn't blink. And I think it's because they saw that terror and they saw that, that hor- those horrific images. We didn't have that with the pandemic. And so you had people say, well, you know, you know, you didn't have images of people dying in hotel or hotel in hospital rooms, um, by, the, by themselves. You didn't have that. And so people, I think people, the visuals are so powerful. Look at, you know, look at the most popular, anytime we do a story for, for Coast Report, for the um, newspaper here at OCC, um, I say it has to have an image. We have to have an image because the image, it matters. So these images matter so much. And we just didn't have that many from the pandemic. And, you know, I, I have images in my head that stick out. The, you know, the mass graves now we're seeing in India. Um, the, you know, the, 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 uh, portable morgues that they had in New York and even here in Los Angeles, um, those stand out to me, but the, the, the speed at which we wanted to adapt, I think has been very, it's been, it was slower than it needed to be quite honestly. We didn't do a lot. And there's a million reasons for that. That's a whole other episode. Um, but, um, the, 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 you know, speed I think is really incredible. And you mentioned, um, 2007, um, and it's probably my favorite chapter in the book. Um, it's called what, uh, what the hell happened in 2007. <laughs> and I think Friedman, um, did such a wonderful job. And this really speaks to the, the, the speed at which things moved at that time. Um, in the book, I, I made a, I made a quick list here of all the things that happened in or near 2007. So this is, this is 2007 iPhone, the iPhone came about. Um, software company VMware came to be, which really increased um, cloud capacity. Um, Hadoop, I'm probably not out pronouncing that right, um, was was born and helped storage. Uh, late 2006, Facebook opened up to not just college students. Mm. Think, of, wow. think about how that changed our world for a minute, <laughs> right? Um, Twitter spun off on its own. Um, probably the most successful um, grassroots website um, started change.org began in 2007 google launched android bitcoin kindle (laughs) airbnb and oh by the way ibm watson I love the Jap- the Jeopardy portion as well too. Again, oh my gosh, I, so good! Because yeah. I was there to 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 watch as a Jeopardy fan. I love Jeopardy. You know, too, yep. Uh, yep. you know, 
Ken Jennings get beaten by a computer. It was tough, right? Yeah. It was tough to take. And, and it's inc- and but but he there, there's a good chunk of that chapter that um, he talks about IBM Watson and and how Watson, you know, he, one thing that Friedman points out that I really appreciated is I think people see Watson and there's fear and they think okay it's man versus machine, right? And he said no, we got to look at that as a collaborative effort. You know, IBM Watson and that sort of AI technology that can take care of a lot of easy stuff. If I have someone, if I have AI built into, you know, um, think about the AI we have built into our cars. It tells me when the oil needs to be changed, when the, when I'm out of gas, you know, those are nice reminders. I appreciate those. You know, we can work together with the technology. We don't have to work against it. Um, and I think that, I think that was a really important point to his chapter. Do you think that some of it, Jeremy is, is like we as humans, especially in this sort of very fast, rapid age, we like to run to these either ors, these extremes, going back to the way we sort of, you know, intake with our news as well, too. It's interesting because you, you mentioned as, as a journalist, you want your journalist to have an image. And those images are always interesting. So I, I wrote down a couple here that just popped out. I'm thinking of, of like Jacob Reese's, you know, photos of, of the squalor in New York at the turn of the century mm-hmm. or like Nick Ute shot in Vietnam of the children who were burning yeah. from the napalm. Like the image was so powerful to help shape the way policy then would, 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 would alter. You know, I, I grew up in the rural South and I don't believe with some of the without some of the images of, you know, the the Pettus Bridge and all of those things, we don't change what we need to do to become a better society. Like the image is powerful. Do you ever worry as a journalist that the images the way we now have them can be almost too overpowering that they present the opposite or I mean how do you yeah. sort of see that as within? I, I, it's, it's a great point. I mean I've I've always been a huge believer in images as news. Um, they always take explanation. They need explanation. They need context. One thing that's kind of scary about this moment is the speed at which we can share images, right? And, and just how, not only the speed, but how it really isn't that difficult to manipulate images. It's really not that difficult to make a deep fake video. Um, and, but the reason there's concern around those is because of what you just said, the power of those images, and so I think, you know, teaching students from a journalism perspective, just how powerful they are and to be responsible with them, you know, having good, um, uh, you know, photo ethics, you know, that's always been a, it's something that I think that in the history of journalism, it's been an issue. And, and I think, you know, um, journalism, photojournalism folks have been talking about it a lot. But one of the differences now is that everyone who is a journalist is expected to have some sort of photo, visual, video, whatever you want to call it, skill. And so they need to know those ethics as well. So the, the, the images you mentioned, I mean, it, incredibly powerful. We've talked about you know, some of these huge moments in our history. The, the images from the pandemic, some of the worst parts of it couldn't be captured because there weren't people out in the wild, so to speak, taking those photos. It was too dangerous or, you know, when there's a health crisis, you have all kinds of sort of privacy concerns coming into play. Um, And so the images that that we got from the pandemic are are somewhat limited um, in many ways. And, you know, some of the more powerful things that I've seen on video um, related to the pandemic have been like, you know, 
front-facing camera shots of TikToks of nurses and doctors pleading, you know, during the height of, of the pandemic um, to, you know, mask up and stay home and, you know, and now get vaccinated. And, and so, you know, those are, um, I, I think if you look at the, the trend in social media, you know, the, the, the hottest social media right now are Instagram and TikTok. And they're both completely image-driven. And, and we like that. We, you know, and it's, it's been sort of like life to see like, oh, there's other people out there too, but it can be, it can be just like, just like every, every medium in history abused, you know, and, and, and used in, in ways. Um, I, I love uh, Friedman's term. He says there's makers and there's breakers. And he said, he's really excited about what the makers can do with this technology, but he's nervous about what the breakers can do with the technology. Um, and I think, I think that's an area where that that's true. It, it's funny as you say that I was, you know, thinking through when, when I was, able to get my my second dose of of the vaccine uh they had put a cardboard cut out of anthony fauci uh <laughs> and people were lined up to get a photo so they could then post it on their tiktok or their instagram right. of i'm i'm here with fauci getting getting my shot and, and i did the same i i had not waited in a line other than to buy toilet paper and i was going to wait in that line to oh, have sure. my image of of the for cardboard sure. cutout of of, of 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 you know right. the most interesting man in the world at that time exactly right? so. exactly yeah well and it's this proof now too you know it's it's sort of the joke well if it's not on facebook it didn't happen but it's kind of true i think with the vaccine I think people, you know, and it's interesting how it's been spun because there are people who say, yeah, that's great. You should, you should take a picture of yourself um, at a Dodgers game without a mask on because you've been vaccinated. And there's other people saying, you shouldn't take a picture of yourself celebrating your vaccine, your, your virtue signaling, your, you know, being performative, all these sort of things, you know? So again, there's that divisiveness that has kind of slithered its way into even something rather simple if you think about it. Well, you know, to, to link it all together as well, too, um, I, I have a, a teenage son, and when we were saying, like, you're, you're vaccinated, like, what's the, what's the thing you want to do the most? And it was go to a baseball game, and I went to a mm-hmm. baseball game recently, and it was the strangest thing to yeah. be a masked up, and then also to think, but there's no one around me and I am vaccinated. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so I think at times the, the overabundance of information, you don't then know the right decision to right. make. So right. we become half maskers. Right. right. You don't, don't quite exactly right. You're not yeah. quite sure what to do. Totally. Totally. So, so I'm curious, are there any passages from the book that you thought were particularly resonant that, that, that the readers would, would love to, to hear? Yeah. I, I, I just wanted to, I wanted to share a, a short one. Um, from that, that chapter about 2007, because I, I just, I, I think it, I think it's really, it's my, it's probably my favorite chapter. And it's probably the one that I talk about the most with my students, because what's interesting is, you know, I tell them, I said, you are, you are all very native to this. You know, every year when I have that conversation, it makes me feel older, but, but, I, but I, you know, but I, I'm, I was kind of, I, I think the 2007 thing fascinates me so much because um, I was born in 1979 uh, I graduated college, I graduated high school in '98, and we were right on that cusp. We're this weird. Some of us, some people call us zennials, which I never got into that. I never wanted to be a part of the millennials. Sorry, um, <laughs> sorry, no, no offense to my millennial friends, but but I, so I always said I'm Gen X, but I, I feel like I'm not that either some days. And we're kind of this in between because it's strange because um, I didn't have email when I was in high school. I just had gotten email when I was in college. I didn't have a cell phone until I was in grad school. And when I tell them my students that now, 
they look at me like I have 16 heads. I mean, they're just yeah. like, what? And yeah. they can't believe, and, and I can't believe it personally. Yeah. So when I, but when I tell them, I said I was, but I, but I also was practicing journalism in that era too. Kind of when it was just email, it wasn't, you, if you wanted to talk to a source, you picked up the phone or you knocked on a door and that's very foreign now. And so this 2007 chapter hits me because I realized like, I, you know, we all were alive in this moment that happened so fast and all those changes. So this is a, this is, um, I think that this is when he's talking a little bit, he's talking about Moore's law here and a little bit about uh, 2007. So I'll just, I'll read this passage here. It says technology has always moved in step changes. All the elements of computing power, processing chips, software, storage chips, networking, and sensors tend to move forward roughly as a group. As their improving capacities reach a certain point, they tend to meld together into a platform, and that platform scales a new set of capabilities, which becomes the new normal. As we went from mainframes to desktops to laptops to smartphones with mobile applications, each generation of technology got easier and more natural for people to use than the one before. When the first mainframe computers came out, you needed to have a, a computer science degree to use them. Today's smartphones can be accessed by young children and the illiterate. And, you know, so for me, um, well, I'll, I'll read on because I, I think this, this is other part is important. As step changes in technology go, Though the platform birthed around the year 2007 surely constituted one of the greatest leaps forward in history. It sufficed a new set of capabilities to connect, collaborate, and create throughout every aspect of life, commerce, and government. Suddenly, there were so many more things that could be digitized, so much more storage to hold all that digital data, so many faster computers, and so much more innovative software that could process that data for insights, and so many more organizations and people from the biggest multinationals to the smallest Indian farmers who could access those insights or contribute to them anywhere in the world through their handheld computers, their smartphones. And, you know, I, I think that, I think that really speaks well to just, you know, the iPhone and, and any smartphone really, but, you know, I always, I always had an iPhone and, and the, the power of it, I mean, all that we can do with it, that little that I carry in my pocket that I, you know, throw on my car seat, that's, that's a 40, 50 years ago. That's a, a computer that fills up an entire room. Mm -hmm. It's with punch cards with, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I, lo I love, um, in the story, um, Friedman talks about in 97, the U S built this, built this computer to, um, track Russia and the Russia, you know, and their nuclear program, and it could do, it, he, he, it's some ridiculous measure of, you know, bytes. Like it's like 18 billion bytes. I don't know. It's some crazy word. And he said that was 97. And I think it was six years later, that same, that computer with the same power was being sold to kids and grown up kids like me as a PlayStation 3. Right. Wow. It's interesting because it, being a little older than you as well, too, I remember first in college I wrote my papers on a typewriter mm -hmm. and I remember getting the first sort of brother word processor sort <laughs> of and it had some kind of you know computer yeah. storage 
And then as a teacher, I remember putting email on my syllabus for the first time that like there's this newfangled thing mm -hmm. that you can reach me when I'm not in office hours and it's not a phone. And now I think we as teachers barely check our phone. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, we certainly check our, our iPhones. Sure, right. But our phones in our offices are, are they might as well be Neanderthals. Yeah. Right? They're, they're, they seem so far into what we totally, do. Totally, totally. You know, Friedman talks about acceleration and globalization in such a way. Are there any other problems or issues in his book that you found concerning that, that you, you want to talk about as well too? Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, the climate change thing, you know, what he mentioned really concerns me. And I think it concerns me more now after the pandemic than it did before. Um, because there are, there are really serious problems and it's not, you know, it doesn't mean that, you know, to, to say it now, to talk about it, we, it has to stop meaning that you're a tree hugging hippie, <laughs> you know, that, that, that conversation needs to go, um, fast. And so I, I think he does a good job presenting it in such a way that, you know, cause he's kind of a chameleon when it comes to his political ideologies, you know, he says there's something that he agrees with far left. There's some things he agrees with, you know, not far right, but you know, right of center, um, but I think that I think having a real conversation about the effects of climate change and what can be done and, you know, the hope one of the hopeful he he's very optimist. I mean, the, mm -hmm. the you know, the the, the um, subtitle of the book is the optimist guide, mm -hmm. um, you know, to the age of acceleration. He is optimist, uh, an optimist. But I, I I worry about you know, he thinks that we can solve this as a community. And from what I've seen, and I hate to be so negative, but from what I've seen in, in the pandemic and um, in the ways that we are getting along in this country, um, I'm concerned about forming that community, coming together to solve a problem. Mm -hmm. And one of the challenges is, and I think it ties back to news, is just what is the problem? We don't even, we can't even agree on what the facts are, you know? And, and so how, how do we start? Um, so it, it's something that, I think I think the climate crisis he laid it out really well in this book. If if you are listening and you are not, maybe you feel like you're not as familiar with the climate crisis as you should be. I think this is a great book to pick up. Um, he lays it out really well um, and goes over some ideas that could help you know alleviate that. But um, you know, one thing that I talked when I talked to these meteorologists, I interviewed 29 meteorologists for my um, dissertation, and all of them said the same thing: it's it's here. It's not, oh, it might happen, or it's, it's happening. Um, and I think he really underscores that. Well, maybe it's the fact that you're, you're a journalist that you were anticipating my next question, <laughs> which was the idea of the optimism from the book. Yeah. And, and, and he even uses the word thriving. But let me sort of maybe take it back to this as well, too. Let's, let's bring it back to journalism. What advice do you have us as consumers of information, how we can be more discerning audiences when it comes down to what we're seeing mm -hmm. in modern 2021 accelerated journalism of the savagery of, you know, you, you mentioned Friedman, right? He's someone who you could see someone saying, Oh, he, he writes for the liberal New York times, right. the grand old lady. And you're right. He's, he, he is someone who as a journalist tries to weigh what he sees and present it back in a way that's not only engaging, but also truthful. So, so what advice do you have for us as, you know, as audience members today mm -hmm. of, of, of how, what, how we consume yeah. what's out there. Yeah. I mean, my, I think my first piece would be understand 
understand motivations behind information sharing. In other words, you know, understand that when you turn on primetime cable news, you're watching opinion pieces. You're watching, and, and this can be any network. Um, you're, you're watching people who, and I'm, and I'm not saying I think there's some really good journalists on during primetime on some some cable news networks. Um, some not so much, but um, but but understand what you're watching. It 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 can't just be, you know, the old hypodermic needle theory in in media where it's just like the the audience just takes the injection and goes right. You, if we act that way we're not going to make it. We have to, we have to discern um, what's being said to us and who is saying it and kind of why they're saying it too. Um, you know, one thing I, th- I think that is always true is that journalism is a business. And I think it's particularly true when we talk about large cable TV stations, they want ratings. They, it, 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 it gets them a lot of play when they say things that are sensational. And so be mindful of that. You can watch that. That's fine. Um, but I also think people need to, I think people need to change the channel or go to a different website. Look at multiple news sites, look at the way, you know, I, um, I, I really try hard to look at websites along the entire spectrum of political leaning. Um, and when I do that, I think it gives me a clearer picture of the story, but it also kind of helps me see, okay, here's how maybe this particular organization is trying to kind of be, you know, trying to give a slant to the story in a particular way. Um, you know, or, or what are, what are, what's one network covering or one news site covering that the other isn't right. You know, it's sort of like, you know, when, you know, this, this whole cancel culture thing is a fascinating practice in that, um, you know, where like, you know, we're in the middle of the pandemic, but the top story on Fox news is about Dr. Seuss being canceled. Right. Um, and so that, and that, and, and that's, that's a selection thing. And I think another thing too, for people to realize that a lot of, you know, people talk about media bias and they say, I don't, we don't trust the media cause they're biased. I say, you know what? Yeah, they are biased. They're human beings. And it's one thing to get sensational and, you know, and make things up and lie and all that sort of thing. But there's, there is going to be, and there traditionally always has been a, a, a particular slant in every media outlet. And so understand that it's not always going to be the way that you perceive the story. And it's, it's good to question those, those sources and be critical of those sources. We always should. Um, so I think really, you know, paying more attention to news just for starters. Um, and there's so many great ways you can get news delivered to you today. You know, sign up for an e-newsletter, um, you know, get an app that'll, you know, give you some alerts throughout the day. Pay, just pay more attention to it. Cause I'm always amazed when I say, if I, I'll talk to my students and they'll say, oh, I don't trust the news. I say, well, what, what do you watch? And they'll say Instagram. And I said, well, okay, we, we, got, a, we got a problem here. Okay. <laughs> you know, because that, you can have news on Instagram and you can do it that way, but know who your sources are. Know what they represent and where they come from. Um, I, I think that's important. You know, you, you want to, you wanna, you know, when you go to the doctor, you want to understand their credentials and where they got their degree. And I think you should kind of treat your journalists the same way understand where they're coming from, their experience, because it, there's a lot of really good journalists out there. I know that because I've had the, the great fortune in my life to teach so many of them, you know, that are now out there working in some capacity. And, um, you know, and I've, I've, I've been taught by journalists and I've met many journalists and, you know, it's, it's, it's not a pretty profession. It's not something, you know, um, it, it, it isn't, you know, it, it's a, it's a tough road. 
to get places in journalism. It's, it's, um, you know, it's one of the most hated professions in the country these days, which is sad. Um, so it isn't easy. And I, I think that, I think you have to take a moment and think about there is a human behind that and they are, they are, they do wonderful work, but they're also flawed. Um, and just, you know, be mindful of what you are consuming. Um, I think, I think that's really important. That had to be hard for you to see, especially in the last few years with this political cycle, to see journalists not only threatened and reviled, but physically harmed. Yeah. Um, and, and I think in the past you had, we, we discussed Hemingway, right, who, who places himself in that situation. I am going to cover a war knowing mm-hmm. it's dangerous, but that's very different from I'm going to cover a political rally. Right. Or I am going to cover, you know, a... a some retirement home in Florida where people disagree and and, and it becomes, you know, almost a target as well too. Wow. Well, I I want to end this on on an optimist perspective with with Friedman (laughs) as well too. Um, Are you encouraged by what you see with your student journalist in terms of where we will go? I mean, is there a sense that we can turn this corner and, and find a different way to, you know, to see the world and, 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 get our information are you are you um are are you encouraged by what you see yeah yeah i mean the short answer is yes i think that you know we're 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 working with a the you know this this generation this sort of generation at the college age right now um is very interested in you know justice is in very interested in in, in social issues and sort of righting some wrongs and they're not afraid to talk about it and I appreciate that. Um, let's have those uncomfortable conversations. Um, let's 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 look into things. And and I think that they have a, you know, a more of a. They're they're a very uh, understanding and empathetic, um, or um, gen, gen, generation. And when we, in in talking with them about their reporting, I, I tell them as a journalist, be a human first. You know, be a human first, and and you know, consider what someone is feeling and what someone is thinking. If you have to press them on a question, press them on a question, challenge them. You should be questioning people. You should be questioning authority, but understand the human side of it too. I I always tell my students, journalism is about people and we, we tell stories and that's such a wonderful thing. Um, you know, I love journalism, so it's easy for me to be (laughs) kind of rah, rah about it, but I really tell them like you, you have an opportunity if you go into this field and there's so many ways to get into it these days to tell the stories of people that may not be heard or may be completely misunderstood. Um, that, that's such a unique thing. And I, I, I see them being very passionate about that. Yeah. I see that. I see that caring and that empathy there. Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's a, a perfect place to, to end the show. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think through, and I think that's, that's wonderful advice in terms of to understand the human element. And I think mm-hmm. that's sometimes what we lose um, to, 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 to not understand, to not comprehend why a person perhaps is, you know, living under an underpass overpass or mm-hmm. a person, you know, is, is, is afraid to get a vaccine or are mm-hmm. crying because they did get a vaccine, right? Mm-hmm. Because they're so thrilled with the world. And, you know, it, it, the human element I think is important. And I, and I agree with you. I, and I think I've said it many times on this show, I have more hope and optimism of this journal generation of, of young students that I see because my generation, I think, failed what we're reading the Friedman book, Friedman book because 
we didn't address it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a- and I hope that the next will, and I, yeah. I like you, am certainly encouraged. So, yeah. so, 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 Jeremy, thank you for joining us today. And, and My it's pleasure. Been so much fun. Awesome. I have learned so, <laughs> so, so much. Um, so, so thank you so very much. Thank you. It was my pleasure to be here. I'd love to do it again. We'll, we'll, the next one will be all baseball. Uh, I love it. We'll do a baseball one. I'm Excellent. all about it. <laughs> all right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Lit Matters. All content is written by Chris Evans, and the show is produced by Steve Baldwin. Music was provided by the band Soup. Find them at Apple Music and Spotify.